You're listening to Sermon Audio from Ransom City Church. For more audio content, visit ransomcitychurch.org. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John 2, 1 through 6. 1 John 2, 1 through 6. While you're turning there, let me, let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt so rattled, so shaken to the core, whether by the trials in this life or by your own sin or simply just an overwhelming sense of despair of life? If you've ever experienced that, you are not alone. A thing that comes to mind or a person that comes to mind is Martin Luther, the uh, great figurehead of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. He's known for many things, including his uh, 95 theses, uh, points where he would disagree with uh, the Church of Rome of his day. When he was put on trial, Uh, for standing up for the gospel in a time when it was not only uncommon but quite dangerous to do so. He was being accused of uh, heresy for stating, among other things, that no one can pay the penalty of their sin by means of money or good works. He issued a bold statement, knowing that he might pay the ultimate price for that. He said, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to do so would be to go against conscience, and it is neither right nor safe, so help me God. Now, this same Luther who stood so boldly in trial, struggled mightily at times, not just before that day, but far after, years after, struggled mightily with what can only be described as a deep spiritual depression or a dark night of the soul, and is said to, at times, feel that God had turned his back on him forever and that he might suffer eternally. He sometimes doubted his faith, uh, doubted his mission, and doubted the goodness of God. So if you've ever felt similarly to that, know that it's not just you. Even giants of the faith who have had great impact have experienced very similar things. And what do you think it is that carried Luther through this dark night of the soul? As we read through uh, our passage and as we walk through it today, I want you to keep a lookout for that answer to that question, as well as a a few key themes, uh, just to kind of list them off quickly so that you can kind of keep an eye open for them. Uh, The advocacy of Jesus, that he is our advocate. The assurance of salvation uh, for believers in Christ and a call to holiness. 
So 1 John 2, 1 through 6, this is what it says. My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time to come together to, uh, to praise Jesus and to hear your word proclaimed. I, I ask that, that you would grant us all focus in this room, that, that we would hear what you have for us this morning and that you would guard my lips from speaking anything that is unfitting. It is in Jesus' precious name that we pray, amen. So let's begin just from the very beginning. He says, my little children. I love that phrase. It is so good. Such tenderness in his heart. He is coming to us not as adversaries, but as his little children in the faith. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Throughout 1 John, there are a whole lot of uh, uh, purposes, uh, or rather statements of purpose. Why am I writing? Uh, and John frequently says, I am writing so that X, Y, and Z. Uh, these things range from, uh, from assurance uh, to rejoicing to today uh, that you may not sin. I write to you that you may not sin. Uh, why is that important for him, to, for him to emphasize at this point? If we think back to last week, what we were talking about, uh, the, the, uh, one of the preceding verses uh, says, if we confess our sins, uh, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a misinterpretation of these words, a perversion of these words that he is anticipating, which leads to lawlessness. Oh, well, I can just kind of do whatever I want because you know, if I, if I just eventually confess those sins, well, he's faithful and just and he'll forgive me, right? All right, great, we're good. Well, no, that's a perversion of the gospel. We have not been freed to sin, but we have been freed from sin. Christ bore the wrath of God for us, and we do not get to presume on the abundant grace of God, and we cannot mock his kindness. So John is writing to us that we might not fall into 
that sin. It would be kind of like a firefighter going into a burning building and pulling out a man right before the building collapses. The man gets up, dusts himself off, and walks right back into the building right as it begins to collapse. That is what John is trying to guard us against. Don't go back into the building. And so he is writing to us that we may not sin. Now, does that mean that Christians don't ever sin? Well, clearly, no. Uh, both our uh, present experience and also John's very words here uh, uh, go against that notion. Uh, and, and so uh, it is clear by, uh, by the context, his very next words, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That is uh, clearly stating that it is possible for Christians to sin. Now, uh, it says, uh, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And then moving on uh, to verse two, he says, uh, he is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Despite the Christian's heart cry of obedience to Christ, Every one of us is present tense guilty of sin. There is no sinless perfectionism on this side of eternity. Now to clarify, he says, if anyone does sin. And, and that really, that, that, that verbiage there really does point to a, a, a track record of obedience. It is uh, uh, the life of a Christian to obey Christ. Obviously, imperfectly, we know from experience. But there is a track record in the life of a Christian over the months and years and decades that they progressively obey Christ more and more and desire to do so more and more. And ultimately, the very result of knowing Christ is obedience to him. And, and realistically, that is our main point this morning, and it is the main point of our text. The result of knowing Christ is obedience to him. And there is such hopeful news here, such good news. We see here in, uh, in, in this passage two core needs that Jesus fulfills for us. Namely, we, we see and we know that we are all guilty of sin based on what we've already discussed in the, in the previous weeks. And we know that that sin is due wrath from God. You sin and I sin and outside of Christ that will bring eternal wrath. Uh, and, and we need 
that wrath to be turned away from us if we are to have any hope whatsoever. What you need is for God's wrath to be propitiated. We need God's wrath to be turned against us. And that word propitiation is a, a, a big word that we very, off, uh, very uh, infrequently use. We don't ever use that in, uh, in our context outside of talking about uh, theology and, uh, and reading scripture. But it is a really good word. To give a, a brief definition, propitiation is a sacrifice which turns away God's wrath toward us. I'm gonna repeat that. Propitiation is a sacrifice which turns God's wrath, uh, or rather, turns God's wrath away from us. That turns God's wrath away from us, not toward us, to clarify. Uh, and, and this is what Christ came to do. Everything that he did on this earth was all leading to this. On him was laid every sin of every one of his people. We just spent the last several months in uh, Romans 1 through 4, uh, which shows how God's wrath uh, rightly falls on every person, every individual sinner. And it shows that uh, uh, either we bear that wrath of God ourselves or someone must bear it for us. If we bear that wrath, we suffer under his wrath eternally. There is no escape. But praise God, he has made a way by means of Jesus, he has opened up a way and Jesus bore that wrath in its entirety, in its entirety for his people. Now, some people do not like this idea, this concept of propitiation, that, uh, that there is a sacrifice which turns away God's wrath which is directed toward us. Some people uh, assert that this makes God a tyrant of some kind. Exactly the opposite of that is true though. It in fact makes him just. I mean, no one is in favor of an unjust judge who lets the innocent, or rather lets the uh, guilty go free and punishes the innocent. This doctrine of propitiation makes God a just judge and that he has provided this sacrifice to propitiate his wrath toward us is a wonderful mystery of the gospel. Christianity without this doctrine, without propitiation, would kind of be like Starbucks with no coffee. That is not a thing. Great. So 
Now we all know the definition of the word propitiation and can pass that theology exam, right? Now that means that you're never going to sin ever again, right? Right? No? Okay, well that actually points to our second need that Jesus fulfills. Jesus not only fulfills our need for the wrath of God to be turned away from us, but we need an advocate with the Father. And this is the second need that he fulfills. You and I do sin by faith in Christ. We are freed from the penalty of that sin. And by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us, we are freed uh, from uh, the, the power of that sin in, a, in an ongoing manner. But we will not be freed from the very presence of sin until the age to come. So what you need is a good defense attorney. Now the role of a defense attorney in, in, in modern court systems is to uh, show that the uh, defendant cannot be proven to be guilty. They advocate for the defendant and say, well no, he's not guilty because of this, that, or the other. And what you need is an advocate before God. And again, this is the second role that Jesus fulfills. It says here in verse uh, one that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now that word advocate in, in Greek is parakletos, and it, and it uh, appears only here and in John's gospel. And, and this word uh, used elsewhere in the Greek language really uh, has a, a, a legal and courtroom connotation. And again, uh, the defense attorney essentially fills a similar role in our modern legal context. Someone who stands for you in the place of a court. And in the Gospel of John, uh, we see that the Holy Spirit is referred to as uh, another helper or another advocate. That's the other way that, the, that, that this word is used. Now the Holy Spirit is our, is our advocate in the sense that, uh, that he uh, works in the life of a believer and in the soul of a believer teaching us about the work of Christ through scripture and testifying about Christ to our weary souls. He is our advocate within us. Now, Christ, on the other hand, is our advocate outside of us. He is our advocate before the Father. And this points to his intercessory work, the work that Jesus is doing day in and day out on the behalf of all believers, pleading our case before the Father. When we do sin, Jesus stands before the judge, that is, again, the Father, and pleads our case. And every single time that, that you and I sin, apart from 
that saving propitiatory work of Christ, there is new evidence in the courtroom. New evidence has been admitted to the courtroom any time that I sin. And Jesus is our advocate before the Father. And he's referred to here not just as, as, as Jesus, but I love this phrase, Jesus Christ the righteous, here in verse one. This is such an excellent phrase. Uh, he is perfectly righteous. He perfectly upheld the law of God his entire life, never straying for even a moment in his heart. And, and this is kind of where that, uh, uh, that defense attorney analogy kind of falls apart. See, that, that defense attorney in a human court may or may not be representing the truth, but rather they're, uh, they're representing a desired outcome that the uh, person that they are representing will go free and not be condemned in the court. But we have a, a, a perfect advocate, one who is never deceitful, one who, uh, uh, who is able to perfectly prove our innocence before the Father because he is righteous and has made us righteous. See, if it weren't for the fact that he had also made us righteous, this would be really bad news that he is Jesus Christ the righteous. Because if he had not also paid that penalty, he would be standing before the Father saying, Yes, they are guilty of that sin. And they deserve the punishment of that sin. He is our advocate before the Father and his propitiatory work is the only basis that you and I are not judged as guilty but innocent. And he is our living advocate and intercessor pleading and praying for us before the Father on your behalf and on my behalf day and night. This must drive us to holy living, knowing that we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous one, Jesus. Let that drive you, or drive you in holiness. The result of knowing this advocate, the result of knowing Christ is obedience to him. Question, for whom does Jesus fulfill the role of advocate and propitiation? Well, John actually answers that here as well. He says in verse two, he is uh, the propitiation uh, for our sins and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, some say that that verse there proves that Jesus died for every single individual who has ever lived even those who die in their sin and ultimately go to hell. 
Clearly, that is wrong because if that person trying to make that argument were consistent and they put this in its context, we would see that this means that Jesus would have removed the wrath of God from every individual that ever has existed. And therefore, no one could be rightly condemned. That would be, if we're going to read this consistently, if we were to say that Jesus died for uh, the sins of every individual, we would have to say universalism that no one will in the end be condemned. But that view does not square with scripture. So this phrase, not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world, must mean something else. It is not referring to every individual, but remember the audience that John is talking to. Primarily, he is speaking with a a Jewish audience. He is a Jew talking to other Jews. So he is saying, not for our sins only collectively, the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And this is amazing. This means that the Great Commission will be fulfilled. Because for all of those for whom Christ died, every single one of them will be saved because he has propitiated the wrath of the Father on their behalf. Now, this means that the Father's wrath has been turned away for all of the elect who have faith in Christ. And this means that all of the elect will be gathered. Every one for whom Christ died will come to know Christ in a saving relationship. And Jesus intercedes and advocates with the Father on behalf of the elect, every single one of them. This has application missionally that we ought to go out and get them, gather the elect, share this amazing gospel far and wide. This has application in our personal holiness, as we have already discussed. And this has application in our boldness before the Father. If my sin has been removed and the penalty for my sin has been removed, I get to approach the throne of God in great boldness. What a joyous thing this is. What a wonderful thing this is. Yet, despite all of that, do you ever look around at your life? Do you ever look around at the world's circumstances? Do you ever look around at the sin in your own heart and wonder, how can you ever keep going? And that's, kind of that dark night of the soul that that we were talking about at the very beginning with, with Martin Luther, this hero of the faith. And this was not only familiar to him, but also to the authors of scripture. Uh, one thinks of Jeremiah, who's been coined as the weeping prophet 
because he had so much lament and sorrow in his heart. And the psalmists crying out things like, how long will you forget me, O God? How do you keep going in that dark night? How do you know that you are his and that you belong to him? Ultimately, how is it that you can have assurance of your faith? Now, there are numerous things that we could point to. We could point to the historical fact of Christ dying to save his people from their sins. We could point to the internal witness of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer his spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But what John here points to is obedience. The point that John is driving at here is that those who know Christ obey him. Let's look at verse three, and we know and rather, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Our obedience to Christ's commands produces in our hearts assurance of salvation. To be, to be clear, this isn't a, a, a perfect and constant feeling of assurance. It does ebb and flow. But our obedience to Christ does produce assurance of our salvation. And, and what is it that God has commanded of us and what does it look like to obey Christ? In short, the moral law of God uh, expressed in the Ten Commandments is the moral law. And Jesus summarized all of the moral law, as well as the principles behind the entirety of the law by saying that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love God, love neighbor, according to the principles laid out for us in Scripture. Again, this is obviously imperfect obedience. We are not teaching, and John is not proclaiming some kind of sinless perfectionism. Again, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So in that dark night of the soul, ask among other things, what is my obedience like? I can't help but imagine that Luther himself looked at these things as, as, as a comfort to his soul when he felt, I am surely going to die and go to hell. When he felt that the wrath of God was surely going to come against him. It is among other things, our obedience to Christ. 
that, uh, that, that causes us to be assured of our salvation. Now to clarify, obedience to Christ and his commands is not the basis of our salvation. Uh, but it is clear that the result of knowing Christ is obedience to him. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, John follows this with a very hard word. Verse four, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This calls for self-examination. Is this you? When you sin, what is your concern in that moment? Is it, oh my goodness, I hope that no one catches me in my sin. I hope that no one finds out what I have done. Is it, man, I really hurt that person and that's my biggest concern. Is it some uh, uh, flippancy towards God, not loathing it because it is disgusting in the sight of God? If it is any other thing other than a hatred for sin because it dishonors God, you are in danger. If this is you that I am describing, and, and God's word is clear, there are many who say, Lord, Lord, who do not know him. Hear this. If that is you, you are a liar, and the truth of God is not in you. These are not my words. These are the words of God. This should make us tremble. Because if you are found to be a liar on your profession of Christ by God who knows your heart, then you will suffer the penalty of your sin eternally. There is no second chance after you die. So if that is you, turn from your sin. If you are hearing me right now and, and I am describing you, call on Christ to give you a new heart and new desires, one which loves him and clings to him and hates its own sin. I am begging you, little children, turn now. 
turn now and be saved and be comforted by Christ. And it's, it's on this comfort that John ends this section. Turning into verses five and six. Uh, whoever, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. If you are keeping the word of God, God's love in you is said here to be perfected. What a wonderful thing. The love of God being perfected in the life of a believer. But in, the, and in this context, that word perfected uh, means uh, to be completed. That is, love flows out of our hearts in works of obedience. Love for Christ is shown genuine by the works that it produces. To drive home that point, let me, let me just imagine for a second that you're talking to someone and they, they tell you that they, they love their wife dearly. And then you're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing, I love that. Tell me about your relationship with your wife. And then in the course of that conversation, you find out that they haven't done a single household chore in 10 years. They haven't taken her out on a date in five years. They verbally abuse her. And that they haven't even talked in six months. Well, clearly you're gonna say, no, you don't dearly love your wife, or at least you're gonna at minimum be thinking that. This man does not love his wife because love results in action. If he loved his wife, he would be serving her, laying himself down for her. And similarly, uh, our love for God is worked out by obedience to his commands. The closer that obedience is, the more complete that love for Christ is shown to be. And this is an area where, where we as Christians get to grow closer and closer to Christ and our obedience uh, to him and our love for him over the course of a lifetime becomes more and more close and our love for him is perfected over the course of a lifetime, as in made complete in obedience. And you should be seeing growth in this obedience to him over the months and the years and the decades. If not, turn to him. He is gracious and merciful, full of compassion and unfailing love. If you do see that fruit over the years, let that be a comfort to you. Let that be a comfort to you. When, uh, when these waves of trouble or, or doubt or tribulation or persecution come and they will come, if you're not in that season right now, you will be 
in that season at some point in your life. And as we close, abide in Christ, as it says in verse six. Whoever abides in him and walk in the same way in which he walked by obedience to the written word of God. Something that I love here is, is verse six here. This is, this is both a, a command and a, and a promise. All right, you say that you abide in Christ. The command is obey him. And that's obviously what we have been talking about this, this whole time. But what is it to abide in Christ? Simply put, it is to remain. Remain in his word. Remain in him. Remain in sound doctrine. Remain in prayer. Remain in fellowship with the local body of Christ. Abide in him. Don't give up. Do you feel weary and tired in this season? Cry out to him and he will give you strength. Are you overwhelmed by your own sin? Turn to him and he will heal your soul. Confess your sin to him and he is faithful and just and will forgive your sin. Do you feel that you cannot hang on to him any longer? Do you feel that you cannot keep going? Rest in him. Find that rest in fellowship with Christ and in his local church. So it is a command, but also a, a, a promise. If you abide in Christ, you will see that fruit. You will walk in the way in which Christ walked. If you abide in him, if you remain, you will see that growth. You, you may not feel like you are doing well today. You may not feel like you are doing well this month in obedience to Christ. And maybe you're not. Maybe you do need to turn. Maybe you need to turn from your sin. Turn to Christ and abide in him. Remember, your advocate before the Father is Jesus Christ, the righteous. It is not your strength or your power, but it is Christ's strength and Christ's power and Christ's righteousness working through you and working in you to make you more like him. The result of you knowing Christ is that you will obey him. And I, I wanna end with a paraphrase of one of my uh, favorite 
hymns uh, written, in fact, by Martin Luther, that storm-tossed soul. The, the hymn is, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And just to paraphrase what he says there, if we trusted in our own strength, if Jesus Christ the righteous were not on our side, all of our works would be for nothing. And Christ will win the battle. Of this, we can be assured. Be comforted, my brothers and sisters. Be comforted, little children, in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Oh, we thank you that your word shows us our need for you and in it we see the promise of your goodness to your people. Oh God, have your way in us. Oh, that we may abide in you and that we may obey Christ in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.